Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here. I want to welcome those who are joining us online. It's great to see a full house. From my perspective, it's great to see a full house all the time. We enjoy this. So, um, this morning we've uh, going to share through the word. Let's uh, let's again. Let's just open with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for the life and the hope that we have in Jesus. God, we just pray for your. Your word to come alive to us this morning. We ask you to bless our time together here in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've had an opportunity to do a couple of weddings in the last month, and I actually have, I think, two more weddings coming up before the end of the summer that I know of. And I don't know if you know this or not, and maybe it's not every pastor, but this pastor kind of tends to get stuck in a little bit of a rut when I'm doing weddings or funerals. You know, you get one that really kind of goes well, and so you kind of repeat it. I mean, you change the names and you change the dates, obviously, but it's, you do a lot of cutting and pasting because it, it went well. Everybody kind of got it. It was good. It was well-received. And so I've done that for a while. Sorry, but I've done that for a while. And so this recent wedding that I did, I, I uh, just really felt prompted by the Lord to just pray and ask God for a fresh message, a new message. Lord, I just really want them to hear from you. So um, as I was preparing for this message, I thought to myself, you know, this would be really good for the church to hear, not just for the wedding. So this would be good for soul. For those of you who were at Bryce and Acacia's wedding, please forgive me. Some of this is going to sound a little bit familiar to you, but how many of you know that the institution of marriage is under attack in our world today? Six people. How many of you know that the institution of marriage is under attack in our world today, right? And it comes from from every aspect. Really, it's from every angle. Well, you don't need to get married. Well, you should just live together and try it out. It's just sex. Don't worry about it. To all the way from that to same-sex marriage to men and women who are not able to define what is a man or a woman, Right? Seems a little confusing to me. And the reality is, I put myself in a little bit of jeopardy just by standing up here and saying this today because now it's considered hate speech. People don't believe that God has standards. I believe God has standards. I believe that God has has this all laid out in his word. Now, just so you understand, that's not the focus of my message today. But it is part of the setup. As a culture, we're so confused about sexuality and gender. And when we're walking in that place, there is no way for us to understand the sanctity of marriage. No way. We can't be that confused and understand that God has a plan. So please understand that there is a place in the marriage covenant where God says, this is something that is holy. This is something that is ordained by me, again, not part of my message. But as I was planning this wedding ceremony recently and I was asking the Lord for some direction, I felt really prompted um, to look in the book of Ephesians as we look at this attack on marriage and why it's so real. Maybe you're going to tell me at the end of this, you know what, I've understood that for decades, and I, as a pastor, I'm just a little slow on the uptake on occasion. 
But we're going to look at the book of Mary, at the book of Ephesians. And the title of my, my message is God Loves a Good Wedding, and I believe that's true. But let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, start in verse 21. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Get that first of all. The first reason that we submit to each other has nothing to do with who we are. My wife should not submit to me because I'm such a great husband. I've proven that over and over and over again as time has gone on. Don't do such a good job. She doesn't submit to me because I do a great job with a checkbook or because there's a lot of reasons that she should not submit to me. But Scripture says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, get a hold of this, we're the church, we are the church of Jesus Christ, not because you came in these doors, but because Christ is alive in you. We're not an exclusive group uh, as a church, we're an exclusive group because of Christ in us. So Paul says, now as the church submits to Christ, boy, I could preach a whole Sunday right on that. Matter of fact, I might pause for just a minute. How good do we do at submitting to Christ? When we feel God prompting us to move one direction or the other direction, I don't want you to raise your hands. But the question is, how good do we do at that? How, how obedient are we when God wants to move us in one direction or another? That's a personal question for each one of us to ask now as the church submits to Christ so also wives submit to their own husbands in everything husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself Christ wants to present the church to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed it and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, listen to what Paul says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. King James says, leave and cleave. Leave your, your mom and dad and cleave to your wife and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then it's verse 32. Get this. Verse 32, Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about the relationship between a man and a woman. And he says, I understand that this is going to be a mystery to you, but what I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. So if we wonder why the institution of marriage is under attack in our culture, why the institution of family is under so much pressure, I want you to understand that it's because this mystery that Paul speaks of, the institution and the concept of marriage reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. The relationship between the husband and wife reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. And so if the devil can steal one, he's stolen the other one at the same time. That makes sense? I'm going to back up. Let's grab it again. If the enemy can convince us that we can have marriage any old way that we want to, 
then he's, what he's also trying to convince us is that we can have a relationship with God any old way that we want to. This, my friends, is what's called a slippery slope. This is called thin ice. You and I don't get to determine how we're going to have a relationship with God. Who determines that? Jesus Christ determines that, right? There is one way, the Bible says there's one way to God, and that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and only the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. We don't get to pick what that's going to look like. You and I don't get to decide, oh, you know, there's a big guy in the sky and we're all cool with that. Sorry, but I'm going to back away because I don't want any splatter on me when the lightning strikes. We can see where this breakdown takes place. But even Jesus didn't have a relationship with his father. That was any old way that he wanted. Jesus uh, said, when you see me, you see the father. Jesus said, I and the father are one. Jesus said, I only do what I see the father doing. And you got to understand that we have to grab a hold of that in our life that we don't just get to do God any old way that we want to we are in a covenant relationship with God and in our world we kind of we run off with this and we can see what our world there's times when when we see in our world around us we, we take it one way or the other right Oh, I have spirituality, but I don't really need God. Or I believe in God, sure. I've heard of Jesus. I I believe in the big guy upstairs. Or the the world goes the other way. And people clearly want nothing to do with God. I don't believe. Stop trying to guilt me. Stop trying to put your religion on me. Blah, blah, blah. We've heard all that, right? But if Scripture relates the marriage of a man and a woman to this mystery between Christ and the truth, we really need to get that right between Christ and the church we really need to get that right so in reality the attack that we see on the family in the world around us is also an attack on the church of Jesus Christ verse 31 and that says for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh as a church we believe in the long-held definition of marriage as a union described in scripture scripture one man born male and one woman, born female, all with the appropriate hardware in the appropriate places, and they are united in covenant relationship before one almighty God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how the Bible defines marriage. That's what we as a church believe and support. The world, our culture around us, wants to trample that underfoot and come up with all kinds of excuses and definitions and when they do, they, they destroy the nuclear family. They destroy that re- relationship. But God says that this relationship describes the church and the relationship with God. Again, none of that is my message. That's not what I preach. But what you need to understand is that's the setup for where I'm going. That's the setup. God sets the parameters for what marriage is entirely. And so as I was preparing to share about this this wedding, at this last wedding, 
I wanted us to take a look in the book of John. And in the book of John, we find the wedding at Cana. And you might say, well, pastor, I, we're doing good. My wife and I, my husband and I, we're doing good. Um, we don't really need a marriage seminar on a Sunday morning. But if Paul says that your marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church, then I think each one of us could use a little update, a little reminder of what our relationship is supposed to be like with God, right? right. Yes? No? I need a reminder all the time about my relationship. So I invite you this morning, when you hear this message, you can hear it from the marriage side. You can say, okay, this is, what, this is what I need in my marriage. But you can also say that this is what I need in my relationship with Christ. God's word's alive and it speaks to us. So you can think about this in either context, but I would really recommend that you think about this in the context of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Think about this message as being the bride of Christ. John chapter two, starting in verse one. On the third day, the wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus replies, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay. I love this account. I, I chuckle every time I read this. It, woman, why are you bothering? So first of all, understand, a wedding was a multi-day event. Maybe it was three days. Maybe it was five days. It was going to take place for a long time. This was a, this was a big deal. But in this case, the honeymoon was almost over before the wedding even got done because we ran out of wine. And that's not a good thing. We got a problem. So Jesus' mother comes to him and she says, we got a problem, they're out of wine. He's like, what are you, it, it's not my time yet. We can go into the whole theology about that. We're not gonna do it this morning. Basically, he says to her, it's not my time, why are you coming to me? And she just looks at the servants and she's like, do what he says. And she walks away. <laughs> the creator of the universe says, it's not my time yet. And she's like, just do what he says, and walks away. It makes me kind of chuckle. I don't think I have that same favor with Jesus. Just saying. John chapter 2, and verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars. They're a little unique. These were the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. So I'll just say this about them. These were more than likely marble jars, or they were not just clay pots. They were a little bit unique, Okay. Um, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus says to his servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Again, this makes me chuckle because apparently he got the message from his mom that he's got to help. He didn't argue with her. He didn't say to the servants, no, don't listen to her. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Mom says, do what he says, and he's like, okay, well, fill the jars with water. Then he told them, now draw so." so Get the picture, get the picture, get the picture. Again, we read scripture and we don't think about it. 30, there's six jars. They're filling each of those jars 20 to 30 gallons of water. So you got roughly 150 gallons of water that they've put in these jars. They know they've done this, right? They're the ones who filled it. They know that they just filled that up. And then he tells them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did it. Have you ever thought about that? We just went out and we filled these things with water. Now he's telling us, dip out some water and take it. Take that to the master of the banquet. I don't know. 
I don't know if I'd do that. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew. And then he calls the bridegroom to his side. Can you imagine being the bridegroom? You have no idea what's going on. You ran out of wine. And now, somewhere in the back room, you've got these servants running along. They're carrying buckets, filling up the jugs. And they just took that to the boss, the guy who's in charge of the whole wedding. They just took it to him, and he's like, Bob, I need to see you in my office. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes we read it too fast. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then they bring out the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amazing, amazing passage. Here these guys have been following him. They've been following him. They've been seeing him talk to people, but at this, until this point, Jesus had not done any miracles. And as soon as he did, all of a sudden the disciples are like, I'm convinced this, this really is real. Maybe one of the most important verses I think that we read in this whole passage is in John chapter 2 and verse 2. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. As I was preparing for this recent wedding, I felt like the Lord said to me, step number one, invite Jesus to the party. I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care what the party is. And make sure you invite Jesus in. That's the very first thing. Whether it's your marriage, whether it's your work, whether it's your family situation, whether it's a job, an employer, an employee, I don't care what it is. Invite Jesus into the situation. No matter who it is or what it's about, invite Jesus into the mix. If you're buying a house, if you're renting a cabin, if you're changing careers, if you're celebrating with family, number one, invite Jesus. Jesus to the party. Right? Invite Jesus to the party. John chapter 15 and verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Do you know what that means? That means whether you're bearing fruit, whether you're doing good, positive things in the kingdom of God, or whether you're not bearing fruit, you're going to get clipped. I'm not making it up. That's what the word says. That if you're bearing fruit, if you're not bearing any fruit, you're going to get clipped and you're going into the fire. That's not a good place. But even if you're doing good things and you're bearing fruit, you're still going to get clipped. Guess what? You need Jesus in that party. Because if he's not there, you're not going to understand the pain. I did a sermon series a number of years ago on, on vineyards and the actual process of pruning. And I don't know if you, you get to, if you've been around, if you've done anything with plants or trees or anything at all, you know that when you clip off a branch, there's weeping that takes place. At the, that branch continues to weep a little bit. It's trying to, to, to figure out what's going on. You and I, we might be doing right things in our life. Things might be going well. Things are going great. It's amazing. We're seeing fruit in our life. There's a lot of good things. And Jesus said, you're still going to get clipped. Why? Because God's mad? No, so that you can produce more fruit. Guess what? You need Jesus at that party. 
You need Jesus in the middle of that. Middle of that. Verse three says, "You're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself; it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine; you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing." John. Uh, Jesus says here in John that one way or another, we are going to get clipped. And I'm telling you, there are times when it hurts regardless, when you need Jesus in the mix. Not only was this the beginning of the miracles in Jesus' ministry, but Jesus is the beginning of miracles. Y'all didn't get that. Not only is this the first miracle in his ministry, but without him, miracles don't happen. You need Jesus in the mix in your life. Amen? Anybody here ever ask God for a miracle? Right? How often? It doesn't kind of come the way we think that it's going to come. Or it's, but I'm telling you, you're going to ask God for a miracle. You want God to do something in your life. You better have Jesus in the middle of that mix. Without Jesus, we're not going to see the miracles that we want, that we hope for, that we pray for in our life. We're not going to see miracles in our lives, in our family, in our friends. Jesus is the beginning of the miracles for Detroit Lakes and Frazee and Vergus and Audubon. He's the beginning of the miracles for the men's group and the ladies' group and the teen group and the children's ministry. He's the beginning of the ministry in, of, of uh, miracles in your life and in my life. Jesus was invited to the wedding, and even though for him it was a two-day walk, he still showed up. And guess what? He's come from heaven to earth and he wants us to invite him into the middle of the mix in our life. Without Jesus in the middle, we're lost. We're lost. We're empty. We're hopeless. Without Jesus in the mix. The miracle begins when we invite Jesus into our life. Standard line in a wedding, we read Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Have you read that before? You've heard that at a wedding? Listen to the setup for this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. They have no comforter. I declared that the dead who are already dead are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who's never been born. Sounds like a pretty wicked place, right? One who's never been born has not seen evil. That is done under the sun. And I saw all the toil and the achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Grab it. Grab hold of it. The writer here is saying, Everything that everybody's striving for is really just envy. They just want more of what their buddy has. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better a handful of tranquility than two handfuls of toil chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the stars. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no one at the end of his, to end his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. He doesn't even have anybody that he's bringing money home for, but he's still got to work, work, work. He's, he's contending for all of this. Does this sound like our culture at all? Does it sound somewhat familiar? You got to have, you got to have, you got to have. Look, look at the number of storage buildings we're building in this town. 
Think about it. If you have not just storage, not just storage, storage buildings, storage condos, they call them now. You're not just renting. You're buying the building. It's on somebody else's. It's huge. You know why? We got too much junk. We can't keep, and I'm just as guilty as the next guy. Again, ask my wife. Don't ask my wife. I'm just as guilty as the next guy. But here, Solomon says, it all comes to no end. There's no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help him up, help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep each other warm, but how can anyone keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And when we're talking about this verse in marriage, we're saying here is a husband and wife. They're, they're coming together, and they really need Jesus to hold that all together. Well, guess what? You and I need Jesus to hold it all together. He is the cord that's going to hold it all together. He is the one who's not easily broken. I'm broken all the time. I was born broken, and I'll remain broken. It's him. He's the one who holds it all together. And I think even speaking of this relationship of having another. You know what? We need the church. We need each other in this room. Amen. Look around, man. We need each other. You, you can't do this thing called life on your own. You can, but it's miserable. Why would we do it? We don't want to do this alone. Have brothers and sisters who can walk alongside you in healthy, holy relationships and then invite Jesus into the middle of that. So we need to invite Jesus to the party. The second step I see in this, in this, uh, this account, this story, the second thing, it comes out of verse, chapter 2 and verse 3. Verse 3 and 4. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother turned to him and said, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me in this? Jesus replied, My hour is not yet come. And Mary immediately turns to Jesus. You see, every one of us at some point in life is going to have problems. Right? Anybody here ever had problems? Anybody still got problems? Anybody know that problems are coming down the road? Just about the time, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and sometimes it's a train. We got problems in our life. Why? Because we are fallen humans. We, we, we have sin nature. We live in a sin-filled world. Well, here what Mary does is an amazing example. She brings the problem directly to Jesus and doesn't try to fix it herself. Grab that. Grab that. You know what happens when we have problems in our life, right? We try to figure it out. I got this. I got this. I got this. You ain't got jack, and neither do I. <laughs> we try to figure it out. We try to, we try to do, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And when we finally have exhausted every option that we have, and it's still not going to work, what do we do? Then we call out to Jesus. That's after we've repented of every sin, known and unknown on the planet, ours and everybody else's. It's after we've tried everything else. We've promised everything that we've got, everything that the neighbor's got, everything that we're ever going to have. We promised that all to him. And then finally, we just turn to him and say, God, we just need your help. And what Jesus is saying is, you've always needed my help. Turn to me right away. Why don't we make him the first call? Why do we wait until our back is up against the wall? Mary 
Mary turns to Jesus first, even though it's not his time yet, even though, get, gotta grab that. Jesus is saying, it's not my time. I'm not supposed to start doing miracles yet. She comes to him and she's like, they have a need. And he turns right to her. And look how her, I believe, you take this for whatever it's worth, but I believe Mary's faith actually moves his hand. God is not moved. Please hear me right. God's not moved by our need. He's moved by our faith. What are we hanging on to? What are you putting your trust in? What are you putting your hope in? What's your confidence placed in? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. I want to give you one other nugget. Maybe it's a little farther in my notes, but I want to give you one other nugget. When Mary says to the boys, do whatever he tells you to do, those are the last words that we have documented in all of Scripture. That's the last thing that Mary of Scripture has written down. That's her last words. I'm not saying she died after that. I'm saying that there are no other recorded words of Mary after that. Do whatever, those are pretty good words. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good suggestion. So number one, we invite Jesus to the party. Number two, you bring your problems to Jesus immediately. Make him the center of what you have going on. Number three, give Jesus what you have. Here he's got six stone jars. They're ceremonial jars, but they're empty jars. They're just sitting there. That kind of speaks about our life without Jesus, eh? Kind of empty jars. We don't have a whole lot. There's not much there. And then they add water, water. There's ordinary water. There's nothing to this. It's odorless. It's colorless. It's tasteless. It's just water. And in true fashion, Jesus uses exactly what's available. He uses what they had. And, he, and when you bring it to Jesus, something amazing happens. Something new, something better than you could ever imagine. What a deal. It's just us. That's all we got. Bring it to Jesus. You bring that to Jesus. Take your problem, whatever it is, and you bring it to Jesus, and he'll make something happen out of it. What do you have? What do I bring? He's not looking for your ability, folks. He's looking for your availability. Abraham. Abraham had one son. He offered him to God as a sacrifice. God did something amazing. Moses, Moses had a staff, just a stick, just a staff. God turns it into a snake at one point, and another time you take that staff and he stretches out over the water and the water. God takes the, the ordinary things and he makes something amazing out of it. David had a sling. Every one of those warriors had slings, but David's sling was the one who killed the giant. The widow, uh, the, the widow woman from Zarephath, she had a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. The disciples, they had five loaves and two fish. Look, stop trying to figure out how to solve all the problems that you have and turn it over to Jesus and just submit yourself to that. Give yourself to, God, what, what, do, you, what do you want me to do? The last recorded words of Mary, step four. Do whatever Jesus says. Do what he says. Do what he says. How many times? How many times? 
How many times do we pray? God, I need your help. God, I need your help. God, I need your help. He's like, all right, do this. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. Well, turn to somebody else in the beginning then. I don't know. So I was uh, working at American Linen, and I've probably told this story, but my, my brother had purchased a car. It was a Cadillac. I don't have anything against Cadillacs. But Cadillacs came out with this, this, this car that had an aluminum engine, aluminum transmission. And my brother had problem after problem after problem after problem after problem. Bought it for this much, sold it for this much, pretty much standard issue for my brother at that time in his life. <clears throat> a buddy of mine comes in. He's a salesman, and we're talking. He's like, hey, what do you know about these Cadillacs? I said, they're junk. Run, turn, run. Well, my wife really likes to color. I'm like, buy her a purse, man. She just loves the color. I'm like, run, they're junk, run, stay away, run, stay away from them. Don't, everything I've read, they're, they're bad, they're junk engines, they're junk transmissions, run. She so comes back a couple weeks later, I'm like, well, did you get her a purse? No, I said, we bought her that Cadillac. All right. About a month later, he comes in and he's like, man, you're a mechanic, I gotta ask you a question. I said, is this about the Cadillac? He's like, yeah. I said, I'm not listening. <laughs> you asked me what I thought. I told you what I thought. You didn't do it. Deal with it yourself, right? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Careful before you answer that. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, what do you want me to do? And God says, this is what I want you to do. And you're like, I don't really want to do that. Man comes to Jesus, and he's got a withered hand. Jesus says what? Stretch forth your hand. I'm not sure if I want to do that. What if it doesn't work? The boys tear the roof open, and they lower down their friend. And Jesus said, stand up and pick up your mat and go. Oh, boy, what if it doesn't work? I don't know if I want to do that. Can you have somebody help me up? The last recorded words of Mary were, do what he says. It's a challenge to the church. This is not just a wedding service. It's a challenge to the church. Are we going to do what he says? There are many places in Scripture where we read about miracles. I'm just going to read, read to you what I wrote, okay? Many places in Scripture where we read about miracles and they don't just happen all willy-nilly. They don't. They happen when there's obedience. There's happened when Jesus said, do this, and they did that. You go outside of that, don't expect a miracle. Well, I invited him to the party. I made him the center. I, I gave him what I had. But did you do what he told you to do? Because it's critical. It's critical. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. I'm just going to read this again really quickly. John chapter 2 and verse 9, And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. And he says to the bridegroom, Everyone brings out the choice wines first, and they bring out the cheaper stuff at the end, when everybody's had too much to drink. But you've saved the best to the end. Jesus saves the best for the end we follow after him we invite him to the party we bring our problems to him we give him what we got we do what he says and he will save the best for the end the world that we live in tries to, to give you the best first and no matter where you are no matter what you've done no matter 
what may have happened in the past, I'm telling you that according to God's word, he is able to do even more. The Bible says exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think, and one translation says, or even hope for. Anybody ever had big hopes, big dreams, big asks? God can do all of that and more when we obey him. But if we're going to try and walk this thing out by ourselves, guess what? It's it's always going to look like it's always looked. You're not going to have the change that you want. According to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, God is able to work all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So church, no matter where you're at, this message is not just geared towards a wedding Marriage is about Christ and the church, and every one of us has the opportunity every day to invite Jesus to the party. Every one of us has the opportunity to focus everything that happens in our life towards Christ instead of trying to overcome the problems ourselves. Every one of us has the ability to give ourselves to him and then to follow what he has said. Today, maybe you're here and you've said, you know what? man I've been I've been doing this thing on my own all along I never invited Jesus to the party today is the day today is the day invite him to the party today is the day make your life focused around Christ it's simple all you gotta do is ask him into your life we repent of our sins. I've talked about this over and over again. Repenting of our sins, very simple. I'm going through life. My name is Tim. I'm doing life my way. I finally come to the last wall. I can't take it anymore. I'm done. I've had enough. What God calls me to do is repent. Repent of my sins. Turn from my sins and go towards him instead of away from him. That's what it means to call him to the party. That's what it means to invite him to the party. Lord, I need your help. I need your help. Today, I can't do this on my own. When we invite him in, he comes in. Scripture says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One more time. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved, delivered, set free, saved, changed, transformed. If any man be in Christ is a new creation, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Some things become new. All things become new. We need Christ in our life. It's taken us some, you know, some of us have taken us 30 or 40 years to screw our life up as bad as we have. Some of us got really good at it and screwed it up in 18. The truth of the matter is, without Jesus, it's screwed up. We're just empty pots. We're sitting there and we've got nothing and he wants to come in and fill you with his holy spirit there's a that's a symbol of water is the spirit he wants to come in and he fill you up with himself take that old water in your life and convert it into wine make something better than it's ever been but it's a matter of inviting him to the party it's a matter of taking the problems turning them over to him making him the center doing what he says amen we're going to close the service. I'm just going to tell you, if you, at the end of the service, want somebody to pray with you, if you want to say, you know what, God, I'm done, man. I've, I'm done. I've, I've screwed this thing up enough. 
and you want to come up, we'll pray for you to invite Jesus into the party. If you've got other problems in your life, I'm telling you, it's all part of it. You want a miracle in your life, you've got to invite Jesus to the party. You've got problems in your life, you've got to invite him into the problems. You're going to have to submit yourself. You're going to have to submit yourself. But this is about getting it right. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you for each person here, each person who's joining us online. Prayer is an amazing thing. We can turn to you anytime, anyplace, anywhere, and you here. It doesn't make any difference if we're online watching, if we're listening to a podcast, if we're sitting right here. We can turn to you anywhere, anyplace, anytime, and you'll show up. You showed up at the wedding of Cana. You showed up. You came from heaven to earth to set us free. Your word says that you came to do that. Father, I pray for each person here. As we run into walls in our life, maybe we're in a, in a, in a fantastic relationship with you. We still need to invite you into that party, especially when we hit the wall. Maybe we're in a pruning season where we don't understand what's going on. If we're in that pruning season, we need to turn it over to you. We need to invite you in so that we can work our way through that and understand what you're doing as we submit ourselves to you. God, there are some who who have never, maybe they're here and they've never, ever decided to accept you and today you're calling. Their heart's just pounding on their chest. Get done praying, Pastor. I gotta get up there. Maybe you're online and you're just you're going, I don't know what this is about. What it's about is Jesus knocking on our heart's door. We don't have the right to just do this any old way we want to. We come to you the way you tell us to come to you, broken, contrite, ready to change, ready to be transformed. God, I pray that you'd breathe life in this place, breathe life to any who are listening. Touch them right where they're at. Move in our hearts and our lives. God, we're asking for miracles. We're asking you to do miracles among us. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Amen.